0: Our scripture verse this morning is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath
1: Well, do you not find it helpful when you're faced with challenges and struggles and trials? Do you not find it helpful to have a teacher to instruct you, a mentor to guide you, or even a friend to kind of motivate you? I mean, when I think about trying to finish out this Christian life on my own, it's uh, intimidating to me. But when I consider uh, finishing out this Christian life, I I need the instruction, I need the mentoring, I need the leadership, I need people to encourage me onward. And uh, that's what I love about this one time a year that we do these biographical sermons. You know, A.W. Tozer has written that uh, outside of Scripture, that Christian biographies are the greatest aid to faith. And so every year since 2004, we've been doing one biographical sermon per year just to introduce to you um, a great man, or last year a woman of God, uh, as, as an encouragement for us to see how God moves. It's not just scriptural, it is that. I think in Romans 15 and Hebrews 11, you'll see the encouragement that we are to take from those who have gone before us, that they are there like stars, if you will, kind of giving us encouragement, wisdom, of, of the reality and the power of God. Uh, but I also do it just because it's encouraging. I mean, sometimes I get downcast, I get a little uh, feeling overwhelmed, and yet you see... How God moves across time and across people, uh, you know, even those with great weaknesses, and he still does his work. And it also kind of shows you the expansive nature of God. When you think about God doing these great things through people years and years before, it kind of reminds you that, yes, he can and will and do many great things with us even now. So this year we're going to be looking at William Wilberforce. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of him. Perhaps you saw the movie Amazing Grace. I think it was back in 2007. It's a good movie. Uh, Read the book. It was a good movie, but the book definitely has, uh, it would do more naturally given its length, but the order of it I think makes more sense. The liberties aren't there. Uh, But he was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was just a man of God. He was a man of God who, Uh, was called to do a great work. And unbeknownst to him, he would literally change England and he would also uh, end up changing the world. He was a British politician, he was a statesman, he was a philanthropist. Uh, He did affect, along with others, the abolition of the slave trade and ultimately slavery in the British Empire. Uh, Witty, humorous, life of the party, not some dour, sour kind of Christian morose and mopey, but but very much fun, and hopefully you'll we'll get to hear this. Uh, there's a bunch of books uh, I read. The latest biography is by Eric Metaxas. Um, it was very good, very readable. Um, you could, a couple hundred pages, 250 pages, a very good read on it. John Pollock is a, is a writer, uh, an older biography. In fact, I, I think he's probably in his late 80s or early 90s if he, if he hasn't passed away, but he actually interviewed the grandson of uh, Wilberforce and, and his is a very good read as well and then amazing dad was this company the kids gave me this uh, I thought it was I was the amazing dad, but it was about another dad. Uh, that broke my heart frankly uh, But the kids gave it to me or let's see I'm probably gonna one of them will tell me who did it uh, Brandon and Katie gave it to me and um, I Get a shout out and anyways it, this um, uh, woman compiled all the letters. He wrote hundreds of letters to his children, and they are just amazing. They cover things from how to buy a horse to how to seek God in the midst of a major decision. Great book of just this compilation of, of a dad's influence through letter writing and engagement of his kids. Just fantastic. And, uh, and then, of course, Wilberforce wrote a book. It's entitled Shorter, The Practical View of Christianity, or Practical Christianity, and that's a very readable book as well. So, so those are, and we'll post those on the website uh, and uh, the names and, and the authors for you. Okay, so let's get right to it. So on August 24, 1759, on High Street, the city of Hull, which is a city maybe 200 miles north of London, if you just take A1 straight up, it's right along the Hull River, which dumps into the Humber River, which dumps into the North Sea. It's the fourth largest seafaring port. Uh, in England at the time. He was a uniquely gifted, and by the way, you don't need to take notes, uh, not that you would, but, but I can give you the notes if you're interested in some of the specifics. Uh, but anyways, uniquely gifted, very witty young man early on, but always fraught with physical illness. Uh, very small in stature, never got taller than 5'3". Five, 5'3". Three. Five, three. And uh, to add insult to injury, he struggled with being somewhat cross-eyed, earning him kind of the, the critical nickname of uh, Mr. Squintum, is what they would call him. His friends, though, tried to make up for it, and they said, well, your eyes just make the sign of the cross to try to encourage him. Uh, but before he would rise to the highest levels of government, he was, in fact, just Billy. He was the only son of four children, uh, but quickly, new suffering, his sister died when she was fourteen. His father died when he was forty, so he was fatherless at age nine. Of course, for the mother to cope, struggling with coping, he was sent that is Wilberforce was sent to his aunt and uncle who lived in Wimbledon and it was there there it would be a unique time where they influenced him greatly, not just as an aunt and uncle but spiritual influence. in fact they they developed a very close bond he said, I was to be their heir, I loved them as if they were my parents. Now providentially and unbeknownst to his parents, or to his mother and grandfather, uh, they were committed Christians, they were evangelicals. They were good friends with George Whitfield, a great name of the 18th century, a great evangelist, huge force in the great awakening. So, so they were influenced by him. Now remember, at the time in England, Christianity was at a very low ebb. I mean, anybody that exhibited any outward sense of faith were called enthusiasts or Methodists. Maybe it was due to the religious wars, maybe it was due to the division that so often accompanies religion, uh, but they were very much against any outward expression, any words on religion. And so... Um, yeah, so and he also was acquainted with John Newton. John Newton was a friend of this family as well. He would often come and do parlor preaching, that is preaching in a home, not a church. Anyways, Wilberforce admits later, he says, Under these influences my mind was much interested and impressed by the subject of religion. Now, seeing their spiritual influence, that is, the mother and the grandfather, saw this evangelical influence on their son, and so they went to London when he was 12 to rescue him. They were going to rescue him from such religious extremism. Grandfather said, if Billy turns Methodist, he shall not have a sixpence of mine. So that kind of shows you the antagonism towards religion. It may even make you feel a little bit like today. Uh, It was a sad day, of course, when they took him, both for the aunt and uncle, but also for. Young William, he, he loved them very much. But it was ironic what the mother said. So the mother gave a parting shot to the aunt. And she said this, sarcastically, I imagine, but I would also add prophetically. She said, if it be a work of grace, you know it cannot fail. And we know it didn't fail. So they tried to remove Billy from religion, but they didn't take religion from Billy. Well, back home, back with his nominal Christian family, fun-loving friends, his spiritual influence waned. And by the time he was 16 years of age, he was really no different than any other 16-year-old at the day. In fact, one author said it this way. He had lost that seriousness that so rattled his mother and grandfather years earlier. His manners and social graces had been buffed to a high sheen, and his premature gravitas had been nicely leavened with levitas. Now, all this was preparing him to leave for Cambridge at 17. And, And this is important to note. Uh, his grandfather had died, the uncle had died, so he became independently wealthy, very wealthy, which would not bode well for his studies at Cambridge. Well, at Cambridge he attended St John's College, and it was here that he would meet lifelong friends, some of the names I'll be giving you later. Uh, but he continued to live kind of this hedonistic lifestyle, you know, just partying and entertaining, card playing, and he loved to be distracted. He loved entertainment. In fact, he struggled with self-discipline, doing only what was necessary, only when it had to be done. So you procrastinators out there, take hope, it can be won, the battle can be won. But he spent most of his time not studying, but entertaining. In in fact, Gisborne, a friend of his at college, who would later become a great preacher in England, he said uh, this, he said, there was no one like him at all for powers of entertainment, always fond of, of discussion. He says, by his talents, his wit, his kindness, his social powers, his universal acceptability and his love for society, he speedily became the center of all attraction to all the clever and idle of his college and other colleges. His his room swarmed with them from the time he arose, generally very late, uh, till he went to bed. He spent much time visiting. The biographer Metaxas makes the comment about that he... uh, that his college experience wasn't different really than a lot of, perhaps, ours were. So due to the power of his intellect, though, he got along quite well with very little studying. And yet it was here that he met William Pitt. And William Pitt, of course, that's the brilliant son of the prime minister, William Pitt. Uh, He would become a dear friend for life. It was in part due to Pitt's influence that Wilberforce entered politics and they would go to the House of Lords just to listen to the Just the debate between these different uh, governmental leaders. Uh, But it moved him into politics, and so that on October 31, 1780, at the age of 21, he was elected to the House of Commons as a member of Parliament. He represented the city of Hull, which is where he was born, and it cost him 8,000 pounds to win the election. That's what was necessary to buy votes at the time. It was customary that you could buy your way into office. Pitt ultimately would also enter the political life. But it was in these early years. He's just in his early 20s. And he is now moving among the high society of London. One socialite said he was the wittiest man in all of England. He had a great singing voice. He had great uh, oratorical skills. And they were becoming more and more apparent. In fact, one statesman, Samuel Johnson, you'll know that name, he said this the first time he saw him speak. He said, I saw what seemed a mere shrimp mount upon a table. But as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. He preached for three and a half hours on, a political, on political discourse. At Pitt said of Wilberforce, he possessed the greatest natural eloquence of all men I ever knew. And here's what, Pitt would, here's what Wilberforce would admit later. He says, the first years in Parliament, I did nothing. Nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. So very self-centered, self-interested. Now, when you go back and you read these um, biographies, it's fascinating. The British politics, it's theater. It's wonderful to read, but I, I can't give you all that. But there was more ahead for him, and it wasn't necessarily fame. It was change. In fact, that's what he called his conversion. The great change is what he called it. This great change came incrementally, not spontaneously. It was over the course of one to two years. It began on a trip to the French and Italian Riviera in the summer of 1784. He was accompanied by his friend, Isaac Milner. Isaac Milner was the son of a weaver, a very common man, but he rose to the position of a fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge. These two, as traveling companions, must have been a sight, because think of Wilberforce, not much more than five feet tall, His chest size was that of a child. It was 33 inches. In fact, one time when he was sick, he got down to 76 pounds. Now, Milner, Isaac Milner, was a gigantic man. He was gigantic. One of their friends said he was the largest man she had ever seen. So you can kind of see him in a carriage driving down the road. It had to be a sight to see. But Milner was just brilliant. He was appointed to the Royal Society as an undergraduate. His Cambridge exams were so spectacular that the examiners left a blank line in the record books to separate him from all the other candidates. He occupied the same chair that um, Isaac Newton occupied. He was distinguished in physics, chemistry, algebra, and religion. Now, Wilberforce described him as an ordinary man. He could mix in society. He loved to go to a party. He would be conversant with people of all stripes and flavors. But he said this, he said, I knew not that he had deeper principles. So the clue that something was different about this milliner who would play a key role in his conversion is uh, that um, Wilberforce one time was saying that this rector from Hotham, a parish, he said he's a decent man but he takes it a bit too far. Again that was a criticism of evangelical Christianity, to take things too far. Uh, but but Milner chides him and says he does not take it too far. And, and here's what Wilberforce says later. He says, had I known at first what his opinions were, it would have decided against me making him the offer of coming on this trip. So true it is that a gracious hand leads us in ways that we know not of and blesses us not only but, but even against our own plans and inclinations. So during their trip, they read this book called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge. And this material provided their talking points along as they took a carriage through, through Europe. It was during this time, Wilberforce pressed them over doubts, objections, difficulties, and one by one, Milner would answer them. This is when it started becoming real for Wilberforce. He begins to move. He, he says this in his diary, but by degrees, I imbibed Milner's sentiments, though they long remained opinions assented to by my understanding, but not influencing my heart. At length, I began to be impressed with a sense of their importance. So you see him, and this is good for us to see as Christians today, that he begins to change intellectually, but it's not affecting him. He would go on to keep living the normal style of life. But with degrees, he started speaking of a spiritual turmoil. He said, as soon as I reflected seriously upon these subjects, the deep guilt and black ingratitude of my own past forced itself upon me in the strongest colors, and I condemned myself for having wasted my precious time and opportunities and talents. He hadn't grasped the nature of grace. So he says, Often, while in the full enjoyment of all that this world could bestow, my conscience told me that in the true sense of the word, I was not a Christian. The thought would steal across me. What madness is all this to continue easy in a state in which a sudden call out of the world would consign me to everlasting ministry, and that when eternal happiness is within my grasp? So this was the big change. It finally occurred in the spring of 1786. He took communion at church on Good Friday, and that's when he would mark. He didn't know, was it it the blooming of the seeds planted when he was younger, or was it a new work of God he would never speak to? He didn't know. But here's what was clear. He was changed. It was a great change. He took stock of his life. He began looking at how he used his time and his money. He started becoming kind of a record keeper on these things, maybe moving a little bit to um, maybe a little bit of legalism on it, but but really wanted to make up for all the time that he lost. With his money, he began. He used to throw lavish parties on his three-acre estate in Wimbledon. He sold that house because he figured he could feed a village with it, and he began taking public transportation to Parliament and he wrote this in his diary on June 21. To endeavor from this moment to amend my plan for time, I hope to live more heretofore to God's glory and my fellow creature's good. In fact, to make up for his wasted years at Cambridge, which he just regretted, he would spend a month a year just reading eight to nine hours a day on the classics and all the things that he should have been gaining when he was in college. Carol said, I should have thought about the same thing with what I did to the University of Maryland. But whatever you think about its decisions, what happened was the gospel was working on the inside and it was beginning to come out. In light of this newfound faith, there was a crisis, though, because remember the context of England uh, or Christianity in England. Uh, he knew that he would be ridiculed in Parliament. He knew the opposition that he would face. And so he began to consider seriously a life of full-time ministry, go into a life of solitude, going into the church is what he was thinking, because how could he carry on a political life with faith? And so you know where he turned? He turned to John Newton, that old friend that he hadn't seen in years. But he was so scared that he wrote Newton a letter, and he asked him if he could visit. But he said, keep it in secret. He was embarrassed. He was scared of what he might be ridiculed for. In fact, when he got to see Newton that day on December 2, 1784, it says he was walking about the square once or twice before I could persuade myself to call upon the old Newton. So you see the honesty and the fear that he had. Uh, Well, they met. It had been years since he had seen Newton. He was 60 at the time. Here's what Newton would say. He said to Wilberforce, he said, I always entertained hopes and confidence that God would sometime bring you to me. Sweet. Instead of insisting that he go into full time ministry, Newton encouraged him to stay in politics, be salt and light in the world. Newton would, re- would write to William Cooper, you know that name. Uh, there is a fount, his poet wrote a lot of hymns that we sing. He says to Cooper, he says, I judge he is now decidedly on the right track. I hope the Lord will make him a blessing, both as a Christian and as a statesman. How seldom do these characters coincide, but they are not inseparable. So both Newton and Pitt were encouraging him to stay in it. Newton said to him, It is hope and believe that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. And so later on, uh, Wilberforce would write in his diary and say, My walk is a public one. My business is in the world, and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which Providence seems to have assigned me. This is a great word to those who even get a seminary education and stay in the workforce and utilize, and, and for all in the workforce. To, Providence has given you a post, to stay in it for his glory. Well, so he goes back, he's fully charged, take his faith, integrate it into the political life, and so he took on two great objects. That's what he writes in his diary. He says, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. These would dominate his life, these two things. Now, let's speak to the, the last first. That is the reformation of manners. That's not telling you, you know, what fork do you grab when you're at a fancy restaurant. The reformation of manners was simply the reforming of society. The reform, Trying to bring civility and care back into society. What he did in a word was he sought to make goodness fashionable that's what he sought to do and it may seem hard but let me remind you of the culture of 18th century England particularly London and the bigger cities it was brutal it was violent remember religion had not disappeared but as one author said it was defanged there's nothing to it the churches were there the priests were there the people went to the church but any sort of active faith vibrant affections for Christ any desire to live for his glory had been long washed away. In fact, alcoholism was at epidemic levels, at all levels of society, both high society and low society. The only difference between the two was the drink of choice. One was claret, one was gin. The low society would drink gin. Uh, Prostitution, rampant. This will blow your mind, but in London at the time, 25% of unmarried women were prostitutes. They had brothels that were special in the sense that they had girls under 14. This is in a society such as England in the 18th century. Public hangings were commonplace and it had become a form of entertainment. It wasn't until Charles Dickens a hundred years later when he finally proved that hangings, public hangings, coarsen a culture. Animal cruelty. If you watch the movie, you're going to see how much he loved animals. He had a fox, he had a turtle, he had a crow, he had all these things in his house, it was like a zoo. But, but they would often, they bred bulldogs, you know, bulldogs were bred to bite the noses of bulls because that's a sensitive part of a bull. They clamp, and then bulls cannot throw them off. And that was entertainment for the masses. So this is the kind of society that he is in now. And so his desire to bring about a revolution of society it was a noble one. So he encouraged King George II to issue a royal proclamation for the encouragement of piety and virtue, and for the preventing of vice, profanity and immorality. And he wanted to start with the leaders of parliament, starting with all the leaders, that they might lead the change in society. But he also wanted to establish a greater punishment of the lesser laws. Remember back then the crown or the palace didn't bring indictments as the state can now. So there could be illegal things operating, but unless someone is being impacted negatively, they might just run on and on, no one to bring charge against them. So he wanted to bring the idea of punishing lesser crimes so as to dissuade greater crimes. Here's what he says. The most effectual way to prevent the greater crimes is by punishing the smaller crimes and by endeavoring to repress that general spirit of licentiousness, which is the parent of every species of evil. I know that by regulating the external conduct, we don't, we don't change the hearts of men, but even they are ultimately to be wrought upon by these means. Now, what's interesting is hundreds of years later, 150 years later, George Kelling and John Wilson introduced the same idea. Go after the smaller offenses, it dissuades the greater offenses. This is exactly what New York City did just a little bit of years ago when their crime rate dropped to the lowest because they went after the lesser so as to get the greater. See, he was way ahead of his time in politics. Well, toward the end of 87, he wrote his book, and this is the, one, the key book that he wrote. It, it was titled A Practical View, of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians in the higher and middle classes in the county, in the country, contrasted with real Christianity. That's a title that's going to get you book of the year, won't it? (laughs) But he simply wrote the book to explain his conversion, and he wrote the book to explain how false religion, or a religion based upon morality, will do no good to a society. In fact, he says this, far different is the humiliating language of true Christianity. From this, he unpacks that universal depravity of man and his fallenness, affected his reason, perverts his affections, leaving his conscience stupefied. Here's what he's arguing, that a low view of sin, ignoring the power of sin, is going to cause us to have an inadequate assessment of the world, we're going to have an inadequate appreciation for our Savior, and a tendency to find the hope of salvation rests within us getting better. It's just modern liberalism what we face even today. So he sought the reformation of manners, and he did, prison reform and the like. But then he went after the abolition of slavery, and this is what the focus of the movie, if you watch the movie, will be about. This is the first great object of his life, the slave trade. It really is just, yeah, it's hard to speak about. It was a practice of trading in human life, transporting specifically what he went after. It was not slavery in general. He just went after the trading of slaves first. In other words, English ships would be carting up to 35,000 African captives to the West Indies, to the British, British West Indies, year by year. It was very profitable. 80% of Britain's foreign income came from the slave trade. In fact, one publicist, of the West Indies trade, said the impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always prevent this traffic from being stopped. That was his word. So necessary was the slave trade. Well, Wilberforce considered it the greatest stain upon mankind. We don't know exactly what brought him to this place. We know that he was introduced to the idea with John Newton when he was was younger. We do know that other people began to instigate. They saw him as a political mover and shaker. And they saw that he had a heart for the weak. And so people began, uh, Thomas Clarkson was one name, began instigating his involvement in bringing about legislation to abolish the slave trade. Uh, But let me explain the trade. So it was called the Middle Passage. The Middle Passage was what got the ire raised for these abolitionists, these people opposing the slave trade. The Middle Passage was this. So British ships would take goods from England and Europe and sail them down to the coast off the coast of Africa. They would unload their cargo there, they would pick up human cargo, hundreds and hundreds of slaves they would put on their boats and then they would take them and sail them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean to Jamaica and the British West Indies and unload their cargo, sell them into slavery on these sugar plantations, which brought about a life that was far greater than a lot of the slavery that even our country saw and then they would load up those boats and take the West Indian goods and transport them back to England. So that middle passage was, they would stack hundreds on there, and they would put these slaves in areas maybe four to five feet long, maybe 18 inches high, and they'd line them up like cigars on the bottom of the ship. They wouldn't get out. They would, they would have to... Uh, Everything took place right there. Oftentimes, they actually had to roll them on their sides to get them all stacked in together. It was a horrendous way. The best time that a ship could make from one coast to the Caribbean would be three weeks. Sometimes it would take a month and a half. Eleven men and women and children were transported as slaves. 1.4 died in route. It's over 10%. Uh, What incident brought this about was called the Zong incident. The Zong was the name of a ship. And this ship was captained by a poor seaman uh, because it took him four months to get across. He was spending time trying to fill up his boat with slaves. And what was happening was as he was crossing the Atlantic, some of these slaves were beginning to die. Now that was fairly commonplace. But many were dying, many were getting sick, and he began to think, I will not make any money if I don't get to the Caribbean and have these, and I won't even tell you what they used to do to make them look healthy, but when you read it, you'll just, yeah, you'll be overwhelmed. And so he didn't think that much of his cargo was going to make it alive, and depending upon how much made it alive and how how many men and women were sold would be his profits. So he began shoving them off the boat. Because he figured that I can claim a loss of cargo that was under insurance and they could make money rather than lose the money by trying to sell uh, a man or a woman uh, who was in such ill health that they would make no money. Pushed 131 people off the boat in the middle of the sea with chains that just sank to their deaths. Well, that galvanized many of these people that had been doing work independently. Because up until the 70s, 1770s, there wasn't this united effort. 1774, John Wesley came out publicly with a pamphlet, said, Thoughts on Slavery. This was followed by publications on the slave trade and treatment of slaves. So the public is beginning to be aware. Remember, England did not have, I think they had a total of 14,000 slaves in England. Nobody saw slavery as an issue. It was just part of the world and part of doing business. So all this began to open the eyes of the public. Um, But the critical time was in May 17, 1787. So there's William Wilberforce, William Pitt, who was Prime Minister, 24, earliest Prime Minister of England's history, and then William Grenville, who would later become a minister. These three Williams were under this great English oak on William Pitt's property. All 27 years old, and they said, well, we're going to abolish the slave trade. We're going to work. These are 27-year-olds taking on that task. So within two years to the day, Wilberforce began uh, putting forth legislation. Twelve resolutions in the year 89 alone. He said, I confess to you, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear that my own mind was made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this day forward, determined that I would never rest until I saw the abolition effect, its abolition. And so, boom, a group came together made up of names, Thomas Clarkson, Granville Sharp, if you're a Greek student, you know that name, Hannah Moore, John Newton, many others who would invest large amounts of time and wealth to move against the slave trade. Clarkson, in particular, was valuable. He scoured the harbors, he snuck on ships, he took measurements, he put together these, these uh, drawings of what it looks like. They're bringing all this evidence to Parliament. But other things were done as well. Um, William Cooper was asked to write a poem. Uh, Josiah Wedgwood, of the famous Wedgwood pottery, he's the one that designed the logo that you have on your bulletins. Just to advance to people, this is what we're dealing with. Of course, the profiting off the backs of the slave trade um, brought up the, the rancor of all those who were invested in profiting from it. And so there were personal insults. They were threatening the lives of those of Wilberforce and others. They lied about the treatment of slaves. They lied about the size of the holds where they were stored as cargo. They even tried to say, the Home Secretary tried to say, well, let's just reform the industry. I mean, have we not, let's just try to fix, you know, make it better. And of course, just defeat after defeat. It's incredible. Wesley had written him a letter a few days before his death, urging him on, before Wesley's death, urging him on, saying the battle would be steep. Bills were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. One time he had the votes to pass the abolition of the slave slave trade. But free tickets were given to an Italian opera called the Two Hunchbacks and many of Parliament went to the free opera. It left him in ruins. He says, Enough at the opera to have carried it. Very much vexed and incensed at our opponents. I'm permanently hurt about the slave trade. Can you imagine just the languishing years and years fighting? It would take 20 years till finally securing victory on 25th of March 1807 at 4 a.m. The measure passed. 283, yay; 16, nay. It was recorded that the house rose almost to a man turned towards Wilberforce in a burst of parliamentary cheer. Suddenly, above the roar of here, 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 quite out of order, three hurrahs echoed while he sat, head bowed, tears streaming down his face. It was recorded that Wilberforce turned to his friend, Henry Thornton, and said, well, Henry, what should we abolish next? While the passing of the law, the fight against slavery didn't end. This was only the end of trading of slaves. So the battle would continue for another 25 years. The act of securing abolition was in July 26, 1833. The House of Lords passed the Slavery Abolition Act and voted to compensate. This is incredible. They voted to compensate the plantation owners 20 million pounds sterling. And they freed 800,000 slaves in one fell swoop it's probably one of the greatest events in human history I haven't spoken about he also just for we have a dear saint from Sierra Leone he was also involved in establishing a colony part of uh, part of getting out the word to the English public was establishing a colony in Sierra Leone a free colony in fact it's called Wilberforce Sierra Leone Um, it, that did not go well. It was, it was threatened by the French, by the Americans, and by the British. But they wanted to repatriate slaves, Africans, back to Africa. Let them run their own colony uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a witness to England uh, and to repair the damage that England had done to much of Africa. Uh, regarding his family, let me just touch on this. Almost a confirmed bachelor, he married at the age of 38. Through a mutual friend, he met his future wife, Barbara Spooner, on April 15, 1797. He immediately fell in love. Within eight days, he asked her to marry him. And they got married two months later against many of the warnings of his friends. By all accounts, they shared a faith, enjoyed a harmonious marriage together. They had six children in 10 years. He loved his kids. That's what you want to read about the amazing dad thing. He he stepped out of his, his prestigious seat from Yorkshire, which is where he was, had a lot of power and clout and responsibility, and he took kind of a backwater seat from a small, from a small county in England so he could spend more time with his family. Uh, again, many of the notes are short, they're sweet, but, but I think you'll, you'll love them. Okay, the end of his life. So, so this is, he retires in 1825, and, um, and then for the next eight years, he's still lobbying behind the scenes, still trying to reform society. But it was on the last few days of his life that he was, he was fairly unconscious until he woke and he said, I'm in a very distressed state. This is the day before he died. His Henry, his son, said, but you have your feet upon the rock. Well, the man whose voice had changed the world said very humbly, he said, I don't venture to speak so positively, but I hope I have. His life ended on July 29, 1833 at 3 a.m., three days after the abolition of the slave trade in all of England, three days after. He was buried in Westminster Abbey alongside his friend William Pitt, the younger. And here, a letter came from the West Indian pastor um, in the West Indies, and he informed Wilberforce's son of what happened. He says, The greater part of the colored population who form here an important body went into mourning at the news of his death. In fact, one described... What took place on the actual dawning of that new era? It says, on the last night of slavery, the Negroes, and this is from a letter, of our West Indian lands went up on the hilltops to watch the sun rise, bringing them freedom as the first rays struck the waters. His legacy is great. It affected Jefferson. He had correspondence with Jefferson over slaves. He influenced Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and many, many others. So what are some of the lessons that we can take from his life? I I don't want you, we we don't want to leave these biographical sermons and say, how can I be another Wilberforce? That's not the point. God's work of grace was unique in his life. But those characteristics that we see and that good grace of God that we see is for us as well. So number one, I would say, uh, to, to examine your life. Just examine your life. It's always a good thing to do. I don't say this to cause you to be uncertain or to be rattled. just want you to take stock. Has the gospel brought changes to your life? Have we been affected? Do we, do we see changes in our own selfishness or increased care for other people or increased concern about the neighbor or use of time or money or care for the neighbor? You know, we, we, we want to just look and say, have I seen that? Have I had a great change? His change was incremental. It was very slow, but it was real, and you could see it. In fact, one of the neighbors from his family when he was still younger, when he still lived in that hedonistic lifestyle, and she saw the change, her name was Mrs. Sykes, she says, if this is madness, that is the madness of, of his conversion, if this is madness, I hope it will bite us all. In other words, his conversion was such that it was attractive. And, and the change wasn't into legalism or, or Bible thumping or judgments throwing down on non No, it was, a, it was a change that, well, I hope it bites us all. Have people said that about the change in your life? But not just examine your life. I would also say make your goodness fashionable. Make your goodness fashionable. I mean, look at your marriages. Look at your relationships. What do they reflect? Are they marked by joy? Are they marked by purity? Are they marked by concern and sacrifice? At one point, he was involved in 69 philanthropic causes. He gave away a quarter of his income every year to the poor. He fought for chimney sweeps, single mothers, Sunday schools, orphans, and juvenile delinquents. So are we leveraging our lives for the purpose? So when you're driving to work, you're thinking, God has given me breath today. He's given me gifts. How can I use them for his purpose? It doesn't mean you try to abolish some, maybe just walk with integrity. Walk with sacrificial attitude. Walk with a repentant spirit. When you're dealing with neighbors, you know, is, your, is your speech seasoned with salt? Is the gospel affecting? Are you speaking with words that are fitting for the occasion in which they're being given? So, I mean, look at your lives and just see, am I making fashion, am I making goodness fashionable? I mean, do people look at it and say, wow, I hope, I hope that bites me as well. Uh, thirdly, remember, perseverance and patience are the keys. He persevered over and over. Over 45 years he worked for this, suffering defeat upon defeat upon defeat. They thought it was going to pass in 1804. He says, I've been so disappointed that I rejoice with trembling and, and shall scarcely dare to be confident until I actually see the order in the Gazette. In other words, he wanted to make sure that he saw it in the newspaper to believe it actually happened. But just remember this in Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, The race race goes not to the swift. It's the slow and the steady. Think tortoise, not hare. Change comes through perseverance and patience. What have you given up on that's a godly and noble task that you want to pick back up again? And, And sense, God, are you leading me to do this? I would also say face trials with faith. His life was a colossal success. And yet, it was shot through with struggles and suffering. I've told you about some of his physical sufferings. He struggled with colitis the majority of his life. He struggled with with stature issues, not being short, but a curvature of the spine that toward the end of his life he had to live with a brace because his head would just rest on his chest. He struggled with all kinds of issues. As I said, getting down to seventy six pounds at one point, and yet, in Spain, and not just physically suffering, he suffered. He suffered um, familial. He lost not just a dad, not just a sister. He lost his two daughters. One was 22 from tuberculosis and one was 31. Not only that, he, he lost financially. He invested a large chunk of his estate in the business of one of his sons who was not a good businessman and lost it all. So this wealthy, independent man that literally abolished the slave trade had to live with his children at the end of his life. He had to live between two houses, between two sons. And yet here's what he says about it. Can you imagine? You lose everything and now you're relegated to live with your children? After being generous all those years? After after being such a man of the country? and How would you take it? Here's what he says. He says, The loss incurred has been so heavy as to to compel me to descend from my present level and greatly to diminish my establishment. In other words, i.e., no house. But I'm bound to recognize in this dispensation the gracious mitigation of the severity of the stroke. He's looking for good from God. He says, Mrs. Warberforce and I are supplied with a delightful asylum under the roofs of our two of our own children. And what better could we desire? A kind providence has enabled me with truth to adopt the declaration of David, that goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. And now when the cup presented to me, Has some bitter ingredients, yet surely no drought can be deemed distasteful when it comes from such a hand and contains such grateful infusions as those of social intercourse and sweet endearments of filial gratitude and affections. How can I reject God? He's giving me to love and enjoy my family at the end of his life. So facing trials, what trials are you in? How has God's gracious hand appointed you for that? And then, last thing I would simply say is to do hard things in community. This battle with slavery, you're going to see Wilberforce taking the main. But, but he wasn't the only one. There were many, many hundreds of people. Hannah Moore was another one. James Stephen, Thomas Wilson, James Ramsey wrote a, a piece that was uh, hugely influential in, in changing the hearts of, of Britain. Uh, Charles Middleton. Uh, so there's names that we don't even know. It played a huge role. He did it in community. You know, you've often heard of the, Clap, uh, the Clapham community or sect, it was called here. Uh, Clapham was a place in London, East London. Now, it's, of course, in the center of it. Back then, it was in the country. Henry Thornton, his, I think, cousin, bought a huge house with 11 bedrooms and bought the houses around it. And all these Christian businessmen and politicians all chose to live there for a season, together working at affecting change. We don't do things individually. There is no Lone Ranger. Uh, We do things as a community. It raises up the importance of the church and your relationships here. So here we have William Wilberforce, uh, A Great Life, uh, very accessible books. Let's just take a moment and ask God to apply by his spirit uh, what he might from the sermon to draw us in just an incremental way toward himself. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.